Before we start the show, sponsor Ixia wants you to know they are running an event called The Network Makeover. Register via ixiacom.com slash packetpushers. Why? Somebody's going to win $50,000 worth of Ixia gear. Worth it. ixiacom.com slash packetpushers to register now. Pilot Fiber, based in New York City, is hiring network engineers for support and infrastructure roles, as well as a front-end developer. Learn more at pilotfiber.com slash packetpushers. Pilot Fiber is telecom without the BS, and we thank them for being a sponsor. Packet Pusher sponsor Tufin has pioneered a policy-based approach to network security management using automation and analytics. As a result, you can make network changes in minutes instead of days, reliably and securely. Tufin, the security policy company. Visit them at www.tufin.com and tell them the Packet Pusher sent you. Welcome to Heavy Networking, and our topic today is edge exchanges. And i, I got to be honest with you, I, I don't know a lot about this topic myself, but I do know we're going to mash up internet exchanges and edge computing. It's all about getting the right bits talking to each other as efficiently as possible in a world where the bits could be scattered all over the place. At least I think that's what we're going to be talking about. So to tell me if I'm right or wrong is Alex Markham, a repeat guest on Heavy Networking. Alex, uh, dude, this episode is your fault. You pitched the episode. You, we thought it was an interesting idea. So I think the way to tackle this is to start with something most of us are at least a little bit familiar with, um, internet exchanges, broadly speaking. So, so let's set the foundation there, Alex, to, to start at the very beginning of this conversation about edge exchanges, let's, uh, define an IX. Okay. Um, so, so typically I think of an internet exchange as a large centralized location, typically a large, uh, hyperscale data center at this point. Um, where many different networks come together physically to actually exchange data between them. You know, I, I always end up saying that the internet is a network of networks, and at some point those networks have to actually join together to be able to exchange data between them, which you know, creates the the internet that we think of. Um, so when you're a network operator, you've brought your you know network connectivity, big fat fiber pipe into that internet exchange location you can decide whether or not to interconnect with any other network operator that's present there. And if you do, um, in theory, everything is lovely and packets flow freely between the networks and, and you know, free love and, and the world is saved. <laughs> so I think of these IXs as solving a couple of kind of problems. <laughs> uh, in other words, the, the reasons that you would do this. So, so latency problems are one and maybe economic problems are another. Is that uh, roughly correct? Are there other big reasons? I mean, I mean, the main big reason for the existence of of the internet exchange is, you know, at some point, let's say, to get from, you know, an AT and T to, so let's say, if I'm if I'm on, you know, AT and T, and the website or service I want to use is on Verizon, at some point, I I physically need to transit my data to an internet exchange to go between those two networks, right? There are comparatively few locations, like in the United States, where that actually happens. Um, you know, one of the largest ones is is Cermak uh, uh, downtown in Chicago, where I live, um, which means that let's say you're in you know one of the neighboring states that doesn't have an internet exchange. Um, even if you are stood next to you know your friend on Verizon and I'm on AT&T and I want to send you you know cat video, um, to do that, my traffic is still most often like tromboning out to that centralized data center, which may be in a different state, and then back. Does that make sense? Yes, and Chicago is one of those locations that makes sense where that would happen, and so much of the fiber in the nation goes there, uh, historically tied back to the railroad network, as I recall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, if I'm in if I'm in one of the neighboring states, maybe I'm in I'm in you know, Missouri or South Dakota or something like that, somewhere in that area, 
um, in many cases, I'm still going back to that location because it has an internet exchange, right? You know, we don't have an internet exchange in every town or every city or even every state. Um, so I would say that, you know, the, the core function that an internet exchange provides is that, that really that fundamental creation of the internet by allowing networks to transfer data between them. Yeah. Okay. So, so those we have, well, there's, there's big IXs like you just describing. Then there are smaller regional ones, um, that get started up for whatever their particular reasons are, but they're, they're kind of dotted all over the place. I know Google's really big on connecting really everywhere that it can trying to get closer to their consumers. Yeah. And then part of the, part of the trouble with, you know, having smaller IXs, it depends who's there. Right. Um, so you could have, you know, a large number of network operators there, but if the guy that you need isn't present in that location, you're still going to have to go back to that centralized IX and then come back. I mean, even in the case of the more distributed IXs that you're talking about, you know, they're, they're, they're more dispersed on a regional basis, but, you know, there's, we're still not at the, the level that you need to get to for some of these um, low latency applications people are getting very excited about where you really don't want traffic even leaving the city to make that possible. Mm. Okay, so we're, we're leading into edge exchanges, but before we get there, you, you, when you were describing IXs broadly, you really highlighted the, the most obvious use case there, which is our uh, internet exchange of service providers needing to connect to one another to carry traffic wherever it needs to go. But you can have companies, uh, enterprises, connect into an internet exchange as well. At least I'm aware of that happening. Um, hmm. Is that... Th- true i don't know if that happens a lot maybe but any comments there alex yeah definitely and to me that's that's really a question of scale um so you know someone like you know a large banking institution or a large you know automotive manufacturer or someone running a lot of you know factories distributed across the world um as you guys know often it gets to the point where those networks start to look really very similar to service provider networks themselves even though they're they're technically an enterprise um, so I think some of those large enterprises definitely are very frequent um, participants directly in an internet exchange. And then it really becomes a question of scale. You know, if I'm large enough to to warrant that, that's something that I definitely look at. If I'm not, then I typically rely on connecting through, you know, my existing carrier to get to that internet exchange, get that, that exchange function performed for me. Hmm. Now hmm. let's advance the conversation to the the edge exchange. So we we've got we know what an internet exchange is. What's an edge exchange? So so for a little bit of background, um, and I know we covered this in uh, one of our, our previous podcasts on on edge computing. Um, I know that's a very nebulous term still today in the market, but the the part of edge computing that is relevant to this discussion um, is what's referred to by um, the Linux Foundation LF Edge Group as infrastructure edge computing. So this is the deployment of micro data center facilities that are essentially positioned at the network operator side of any of the last mile networks, whether that's you know 4G, 5G, cable, ADSL, doesn't really matter. Um, it's it's the ability to to put a micro data center somewhere between you know 150 to 200 kilowatts of gear um, in that location, and then have the associated network connectivity to connect to both those. Last mile networks where the customers and users directly access the overall network, and then to the the middle mile network infrastructure that connects you know those last mile networks to the rest of the network ecosystem. So how small do they get? Like I look at a mobile phone base station, and some of those have got 
you know, 40 or 50 amps worth of gear sitting at the bottom of that stack. Now that's 10 kilowatts, say 20 kilowatts. And they're really edge data centers as well, or edge exchanges in my view. Because quite a lot of those, like globally, those mobile phone towers are no longer owned by the mobile phone companies. What they do is they sell the mobile phone towers and the base stations off to third parties and they're managed independently of the telcos. Right. And companies like, you know, Crown Castle and other people like that do a lot mm. of that work, right? I'm sure you've you've interacted with those um, as well. And it's it's interesting because I think, you know, w- what you're thinking about there is is the mobile phone base station. And then as that gets virtualized, you know, that takes different forms, but it's still... Yeah. Know, well, that's a big part of 5G is that that uh, virtualization. 5G is instead of having... Uh, so today in 3G and 4G, the bottom of a mobile phone tower almost exclusively is hardware, custom hardware from various vendors, Nokia and Ericsson and so forth. But a lot of 5G is that they're going to replace that with virtualization. And instead of having custom appliances for everything, it's going to be VMs. And so the data centers at the bottom of mobile phone towers change dramatically. Is that not an example of... Edge computing, or is edge exchange different from edge computing? So, so edge exchange is a is a function that you know an edge computing facility can give you, right? So, so maybe this will this will help if I if I kind of go through what it, what it looks like today, and then what it looks like when you have this edge computing infrastructure that can also provide um, edge exchange functionality on top of that. So, as you as you said, um, you know, typically today in in three G four G. Um, you know, we have these, um, you know, baseband units typically at cell towers connected to radio heads at the top of cell towers. And those are responsible for the baseband processing, you know, transmitting stuff across the, the network, across that front hall connectivity back to some kind of carrier location where it can then be backhauled out to the rest of the carrier network, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So at the moment, those locations don't provide an exchange service where I could get my traffic out to normal IP packets at the bottom of the cell tower and then put them onto a different network. They could right. though, right? They could in the future potentially. Why they could, not? They could. They could in the future, yeah. which is what this what this is 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 doing essentially. So, and, and so if the, I, the people who share the towers effectively exchange bandwidth between each other to some extent. Not they, that much. There's not yeah, much I mean, network exchange bandwidth on a in a mobile phone network though. You don't normally talk mobile to mobile, so. Yeah, I mean, at the moment you're still you're still taking you know a CPRI or an eCPRI connection, which is still kind of encapsulating all of the you know the the, yeah. the mobile traffic for that specific network back to you know a carrier hotel or an IX, where it then gets split out, you know, given proper public IP addresses, and then it can be exchanged between networks, right? Yeah. So so typically five G five G changes that around though they don't yes tunnel yes, it, it back does. to the core yeah. It does, and that's that's kind of partly what what is enabled by this whole this whole architecture here. So if, if we if we agree on that's kind of what it looks like today, where even if I'm stood next to you know my friend, let's say that you know Verizon and AT and T are on the same tower, I still can't do that exchange of traffic between those networks at that tower, right? It's still got to go back to this centralized point, be exchanged typically in an IX, and then come back through the RAN to talk to my friend, right? So if we're talking about the five G network um ideally you know you have something like this this micro data center maybe of different scale maybe a smaller scale like you know 60 kilowatt facility for something like that um but that's yeah. connected at a site that's at least you know fiber connected within you know 10 15 kilometers of a tower so you're able to get you know sub 100 microsecond you know latency potentially um on yeah. a straight you know dark fiber run yeah. then yeah. at that point 
you know, you're able to do things like local breakout in that facility. And then once you've done local breakout to break the IP traffic out of all the telco encapsulation, then you can do this edge exchange functionality to transmit data between those two networks at that edge location without having to take this trombone route yeah. back through and, the network. Now, that's important because you're going to see a lot more internet exchanges come into the market because today most of the telco, most of the mobile phone companies tra- back all, all the traffic to a capital city. So if you've got or some major point, right, and usually it's about 10,000 square miles, I think is the number, and then they back all, all the traffic to some central point and then punch it onto an MPLS. And there's usually an internet breakout at some major point. That's not desirable because all that traffic has to be backhauled across networks to central points and that costs money. If they could start to do more offloading closer to where the mobile phone tower is, those companies save money because they have less backhaul costs. Yes, and that, that's exactly what this is intended to do. Mm. So, mm. you know, to, to do that, you've got to have some facility on the ground to physically make that that data exchange, right? Which is kind of why I was mm. going with the, you know, this is at least a variant of the infrastructure edge computing kind of model where you put you put mm. something there, whether it's like 60 kilowatts, 100 kilowatts, doesn't really matter in this case, right? It's, it's a place yeah. that is large enough to support that exchange functionality and any local breakout that the carriers need to do to cross cross connect at that point and exchange data there and you're entirely right i mean it's you know when you think of the amount of data that is moved across you know the country i mean i was i was working with um you know one carrier here and um despite you know living next to one of the largest internet exchanges in the world um every piece of data that i sent it was actually sent back through dallas um, which is mm. you know a three-hour flight away <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of puts it all in perspective a little bit. If you think of you're moving, you know, terabits of data across that kind of scale, that costs money, as you said. And then also you're just introducing so much, you know, end-to-end latency and then potential jitter into that that's supporting a lot of these use cases that a lot of the carriers are looking at to really be able to monetize their 5G networks is very challenging, if not impossible, right? Like some of these things for autonomous control of, of robotics or drones or vehicles, things like that, um, are yeah. targeting you know sub ten millisecond round trip between the user and the application, right? Yeah. And you think yeah. you can get sort of you know sub sub five round trip with the five G NR radio, but if you're going across the country or even across the state to an IX, that's not going to happen. Yeah, and you get weird things like it it, it comes onto the mobile network, loops five thousand miles in one direction. And then loops back two thousand miles to the local <laughs> internet exchange, and then yeah, and you end up. And so part of, the, I guess the, the point I wanted to make here is that this idea of internet exchanges are actually very important to SD WAN mm. and to overlay networking generally, because instead of the telcos over using their own internal networks, so uh, the three G, four G that we have, the traffic is actually encapsulated into an overlay network and backhauled to some central point. Not an, not entirely unlike how Wi Fi does it today. And then it gets authenticated and counted and logged and inspected and all that sort of stuff, um, you know, and work out what the billing is at those central locations. That's going to change. All those functions are going to move out to the edge of the network. And this is part of where edge exchanges are coming from. And the idea of software-defined radio networks and software-defined 5G is that that's what it does. But if you're running SD-WAN over the 5G, which is the second step behind it, because a lot of enterprises are transitioning to 5G, it means that your traffic gets off the mobile phone network as quickly as possible. And that is a desirable thing. You want to be out of the mobile phone network because it usually doesn't have enough bandwidth in the backhaul. Their backhauls are often highly congested and substandard by my own, by my, by my standards. Is that 
Do you no, think no, that's reasonable? No, absolutely. I mean, this this is this is why this interests me from a from a network engineering standpoint is that this is really a network topology problem. You know, you can you could upgrade that backhaul. You could put mm. you know multi terabit connectivity between all these things. You're still sending traffic ultimately to places that it really doesn't need to go if you were able to design this from scratch. Um, you know, before it gets anywhere near where you want it to be. You know, potentially thousands of miles of round trip. Um, that simply doesn't need to happen if you're able to do that breakout as close as possible to the tower and then mm. do any exchange that you can between networks that are present at the edge at the edge. And then, you know, the ideal case is to have you know, huge volumes of both, you know, current traffic and some of these more futuristic applications that don't have to ever actually leave the city apart from, you know, comparatively yeah. hopefully mm. rare cases where you still need to go to the internet. Maybe you know, if you're doing like... Um, you know, uh, you know, data ingest, for example, for you know a city scale IoT network. I mean, you've got a great combination there of a lot of data and potentially a lot of data that you need to make actionable very quickly. And yeah. having to do this long round trip makes that challenging. Yeah, correctly. Yeah, I've always I've always wrestled with the fact that mobile phone networks are pretty disastrous. Uh, you know, the fact that smartphones work at all always kind of astonishes me and the idea that <laughs> because i've been inside one and i i know how badly engineered they are hang in there for a moment while i share with you the network makeover event put on by sponsor ixia december 2nd through december 13 2019 ixia is running this event containing information about how you can turn your network data into dynamic network intelligence yeah, right here. From an engineering perspective, what is Ixia getting at, quote, turning data into dynamic intelligence? All right, let's say you run a network management station because you do. What data do you get out of an NMS? Red light, green light, graph showing bandwidth consumption, device stuff like temps and power supply status. And from there, you probably build a bunch of alert triggers that fire off notifications when bad stuff is happening. And that's all fine as far as it goes. But what if you could feed all of that data and a whole lot more like packet flows and so on into an ingestion engine that analyzes the network data and gives you insights into what's going on down on the wire? Yeah, monitoring devices and interfaces, that's okay. It's important. But the real action isn't in monitoring the highway. You want to understand the cars going down the road because that's how you make sense of what your network is good for and actions you might need to take to improve it, to secure it. The Network Makeover event by Ixia is going to show off how to get that done with Ixia Gear. They really want you to be there, so they are sweetening the deal with giveaways. One fortunate human is going to get $50,000 worth of Ixia hardware and software. you got to pick what you want, up to $50,000 in value. Another 50 folks are going to get an Ixia swag bag, and if you don't care about giveaways, fine. You can still get access to Ixia publications covering industry best practices for data access, data processing, inline security monitoring, and core-to-edge monitoring, that whole dynamic network intelligence idea. The Network Makeover will be held from December 2nd through December 13th, 2019. It's a virtual thing. You don't have to travel anywhere. Register via ixiacom.com slash packetpushers. One more time, you register via ixiacom.com slash packetpushers. And now back to the show. It would be fair to say that incompetence is the new normal for most mobile phone backbone <laughs> necklaces. Uh, I mean, it's, it's always the problem with the brownfield Network deployment, right? I mean, how many of those have you come across, right? I mean, a lot of these networks are still building on the original kind of hub model that was built for 2G. Then 3G was kind of put on top yes. of that. 4G was put on top of well, that. And now it's... The thing the about it is that not going to work. 3G and 4G didn't change the traffic patterns because of the encapsulation and trunking back. The 3G PP standard didn't allow for local breakout. And 
in 5G, the way that the packets are encoded is basically it gets to IP a lot quicker. As soon as it comes off the RAN, it's IP. Yes. And yeah. And the assumption in 5G is that you're not <laughs> the assumption in 2G, 3G, 4G is that you're making telephone calls first or sending yes. text messages. Right? That's the primary purpose of a mobile phone network. And 5G is kind of like the final acceptance that, you know what? It is all IP traffic. Really. You know. <laughs> <laughs> no one's going to use my crappy SMS service or, you know. <laughs> yeah. And I was it just, really you know, is. When, it, when, I, when I really went through and went through all the 5G specs from, you know, from the, from the new radio side of things on the RAN to the core and then all this other stuff, I was like, I am so happy that this is not another generation that still pretends that the voice is the main thing because I was thinking yeah. I, cannot, I cannot do ATM again. I'm not doing it. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> and I'm not doing anything like ATM ever again because my life no. is too short to be that sad. Yeah. No, I, I have a friend of mine who uh, had to do ATM to the desktop once and I just like to give him flashbacks every now and then and just give him a little, <laughs> but, bit, a little bit of PTSD. I've done ATM to the desktop and that's part of why I'm so damaged as a human being. <laughs> I mean, I'm 25 meg to the desktop, seriously. So. Oh, it's it's the future. <laughs> but um, I mean, you you, it's you something. Really, really I'll, I'll give you that. Yeah, it's something, something that cannot be repeated in polite company. But yeah. it's it's something. Mm. But you know, you, you you hit the nail on the head here, really, in that um, you know what this is intended to do is really um, you know enable that kind of 5G network because you need somewhere to ideally terminate the you know the virtual RAN functions, and then you need somewhere to Form this edge exchange functionality, and you know, from a network topology standpoint, the ideal place to do that is somewhere that has enough resources to be able to scale that up over time if you need to, and then be physically close enough to where stuff can come directly off the RAN to make that exchange, you know, optimal from a location standpoint. Right now, is that the primary use case here? We've been talking a lot about service provider, service provider functions, services that they want to offer. And, and maybe connect to to facilitate that. Are there non-service provider use cases? If I'm an enterprise, do I have some interest in connecting to an edge exchange? I think you do when you get to a specific scale or if you have a specific application you're trying to do that really needs that low latency connectivity. Like, for instance, if I'm, uh, you know, if I'm, I'm going to just pull a name out of thin air here, but if you're like a Ford, for example, um, a lot of those guys are talking about doing their own private networks for things like vehicle tracking, maybe that's an LTE network over CBRS, for example. And they're also looking at how they can enable a lot of these kind of, if not autonomous driving, then connected driving type use cases that let them, you know, make money on top of the vehicle that they're already selling. Um, But they need that kind of low latency connectivity to do that. So I I think it's kind of like an internet exchange in that case. I think you've either got a specific use case or you've got enough scale to make you directly coming into that edge exchange, you know, useful. For instance, if you're a CDN, that's a great example of it because, you know, you're pushing a lot of traffic and ideally the best place to do that, both for your user experience and to lower your transport costs is a place where you can get there off of your network as quickly as possible, right? Yeah, so you, you're projecting yourself right to the edge of someone else's network um, and kind of going around rather, rather than having to backhaul all the way through the service provider's network or the carrier's network to finally get back to your network. You're just going to plumb a line straight through to the edge exchange, drop your CDN there, whatever your mm. uh, service stack is, and go that way. Is that the point you're making? Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if you're yeah. thinking about, you know, a, a, you know, a Netflix or someone like that who would potentially be moving, you know, terabits of, of video content, um, you know, I would personally rather do that from a location that is, you know, in the city I'm trying to serve than one that's, you know, potentially costing me 
a lot of money in terms of my my mid haul and back haul connectivity to do that from you know a, a, a further out point. I thought we have another way yeah. that Netflix can fix that problem. Just cut the library down to Stranger Things, and we're done. That's good. <laughs> and they don't have that terabits problem anymore, and we get the same value from Netflix we've always gotten. Anyway, that's it. <laughs> it's it's really interesting in the sense that um, there are in the U.S. this Internet Exchange points is actually a commercial business, and it's big bucks. There are companies mm. out there who build. Um, entire businesses out of establishing, operating an exchange point. And yet in Europe, all of them are non-profits or uh, are basically they're not charitable. They're just non-profit. They're set up as a community effort. And any funds that go to the internet exchange points is funneled back into maintaining the business. Now, 10 years ago, the people who worked in internet exchanges were very moral and they were doing it for the good of the society. These days, there's an awful lot of sandbaggers pulling a lot of cash and flying on fancy flights that, um, that run internet exchange points because they don't have a profit motive. But I'd still rather have uh, the pricing that I pay for an internet exchange point in Europe than the pricing you that uh, paid in a market where internet exchange is for profit. The prices you pay in the US is phenomenally expensive compared I... to what we pay per port here. <laughs> I was I was thinking you were going to bring that up because uh, hmm. I've done some work with you know some of the some of the original IXs in London, and the, yeah. the model is is definitely different. And I just want to yeah. I just wanted to say one thing from kind of a I know we're talking more about the technology, but from like from like a business standpoint, you know you. You have this edge exchange. That internet exchange still exists, right? You can't get everyone in each edge exchange. You can't move everything you know, right out there, at least not you know initially. So the edge exchange is very much kind of a complementary entity to that internet exchange. Um, but yeah, it's it, the model between Europe and and um, you know the US in particular is is quite and quite other countries as well. Like that's the dichotomy because they're the two biggest markets, but and different countries around the world. It's just interesting, like. Connecting to an internet exchange point if your head office is in London is basically a done deal. A lot of yeah. companies correct. And if you're setting up an SD-WAN deployment, it makes sense to have a line directly from your head office or your colo straight into your local inter IX, right, your IXP. Yeah. Because you'll get so much lower latency. There's no point in having a 10 meg circuit from VT and, and you know, whoever. Well, you might as well just buy a 10 meg straight into the internet exchange so you get the lowest possible latency on the SD-WAN. Right, right, and it's yeah. it's you know obviously you you know you can correct you can connect directly into an IX in the US, but as you say, the cost model is is so different yes, that yeah. you know whether whether you're at if you're not at a specific scale or have a very specific use case, it's typically easier to just just you know connect into AT and T and let them do it. Yeah, for that's you, right. Right, the internet exchange points have priced themselves out of the market. The only people connecting to IXPs in the US is companies, and that's only because they can't bring themselves to talk to each other because they play stupid sports ball games. Like, <laughs> I'm not going to connect with you, you know, but I have to connect with you. So we'll do it at an IXP. Yeah. Like, it's the most childish corporate stuff that you've ever seen in your life. You know? But um, I mean, you know, as, as I always end up saying, you know, the internet is a network of networks and what, what runs networks businesses, right? So people mostly people but businesses. Yeah. yeah. You know, but people work for companies and that's where the problem comes in. Yeah. <laughs> This is, in, in some ways, this is very much a layer eight problem. Yeah, that's right. Yes, I just but, wanted to flag uh, it for for people who don't understand how IXPs work. And there's multiple different models, and the most effective model I've ever seen. Like it costs, it like the the complexity of running an, an internet exchange point is nothing. You basically run a route reflector and a couple of Ethernet switches in a rack, and boom, you're done. That's mm -hmm. it. It's not actually all that valuable at all. It's 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 like as commonplace as anything. Yeah, right. And it's just, you know, I mean, in, in some ways, you know, the edge exchange is a similar thing. I mean, fundamentally, 
you know, this could be done either through, you know, having switches in one of these edge locations connect together, like some of the original IXPs, or because yeah. these are unmanned locations, typically, you know, when you when you get people on site, you know, you will plug into a single, you know, MMR switch, and then any cross connects you do are done, you know, on a on mm. a on a virtual basis through through that, and then you do you know BGP on top of those connections. But I mean, fundamentally, it's it's the same thing. You know, we, we need ways to exchange data between networks, and we need ways to you know capitalize on being able to in a five G world de-encapsulate that raw IP traffic and get it onto other networks as fast as possible. And you know this is a way a way to do that. You know, why is an edge exchange even a even a separate category? Because it feels like yeah, we're just talking about things we've been talking about for a long time. We just moved it maybe you know closer to the edge, and that's all that's novel about this. Uh, we, we've shaved some milliseconds off of some uh, latencies that or transactions that are latency sensitive. Is there is there more to this, Alex? I mean, I mean, in many ways that's true. I mean, the the interesting part really comes where. Um, you know, the, the reason to have a different category for it is that, you know, it's still, it's complementary to an existing IX that exists because that IX doesn't disappear. And then purely by the location of the edge exchange, you know, you're, you're not going to have the same types of connectivity out to, you know, the wider, you know, internet backbones that you are from a centralized edge exchange. But like in many things in networking, ultimately, it's kind of an evolution of kind of a cyclical concept that we've had, which is, okay, um, I need to figure out what is the most optimal way to essentially exchange data between networks? Um, moving that out to the edge is kind of a, a logical, you know, progression of having these original centralized locations, moving that out to more regional locations, and then now doing it in an edge location. Um, you know, it's basically just that's the concept, really. I, th- I think you hit the nail mm-hmm. on the head. But what's the what's the fiber plant look like for this? I mean, is there something changing there that's facilitating this? Because I'm going to make the assumption that this doesn't. This isn't an overlay. It doesn't make sense as an overlay. You really do need to be plumbed directly into the edge exchange to get the get the value out of it. An overlay doesn't change your latency profile at all. So yeah, yeah. Ultimately, you know, this what what makes this interesting from a network topology standpoint is you know the actual physical change of the path that pathic packets take, right? And then you can you can put whatever overlay you want on top of that. But ideally, each one of those you know infrastructure edge data center locations is basically a fiber aggregation hub for that area. Perhaps that's for a city, that might be for part of a city, depending on how big the city is. Um, but yeah, you, you you do have a large number of you know nearby fiber connections coming into that location to make this make sense, right? Typically, those connections are going to split between um, ones that connect to you know front hall use cases to connect to things like the cell towers directly. Um, and then stuff that comes out the other side of the data center to go to you know, this kind of um, mid-hall connectivity to span the rest of the city. Um, then ideally then also connect back to the internet exchange as well for the traffic that still needs to make that path. But you're right, it is a physical you know, aggregation hub for a lot of local fiber connectivity that comes in, you know, potentially multiple terabits of connectivity coming into that, that you know, thing the size of, probably the size of a shipping container or smaller in most cases. So it's quite a, it's quite a dense... Um, you know, joining of local network resources. And now, a word from our sponsor. Did you like that? I just wanted to be be dramatic as I cut in with this. I, I got an interesting one here, for, especially if you're looking for work. Pilot Fiber, based in New York City, they are hiring network engineers for support and infrastructure roles, as well as a front-end developer. Not sure why Pilot Fiber might be an interesting place to work. Well, their tagline is telecom without the BS. And if that's an attitude you identify with, Here's a bit more of how they describe themselves. 
Pilot Fiber actually cares about customers, so they make everything easy. Pricing is all-inclusive. There are no contracts. The setup and installation is fast. Pilot Fiber customers work with local support and construction teams, so think of them as your friendly neighborhood internet experts. Pilot Fiber makes a big deal about the products actually working, and they claim that they are the only network in the country that has real-time fiber monitoring, so they differentiate themselves by combining this advanced approach to networking with dedication to quality, reliability, and that inclusive pricing we mentioned. If working for a company like that seems interesting, they are hiring, filling roles in junior and senior network support engineering, network infrastructure engineering, and front-end development. Telecom without the BS. Learn more at pilotfiber.com slash packet pushers. That's pilotfiber.com slash packet pushers. And we thank them for being a sponsor. Go on now as you were. Back to the episode. Is there any magical implication for BGP policies with this? And I bring this up in the scenario of any of us that have done edge connectivity for the internet, edge as in our premise location where we're bringing in internet circuits, we're bringing in full BGP tables. Of course, you got to not become a transit router, and, and most of your service providers are going to prevent you from doing that anyway. They don't want to hear your announcements except for, you know, whatever the networks are that you've agreed to announce that they've agreed to accept. Um, but that, you know, topologically is always a challenge, making sure your BGP converges in the way you want to. I could see an edge network becoming an interesting transit point. Uh, is there anything beyond <laughs> that where BGP is something we care about, or there's something new and novel for BGP that uh, edge exchanges are introducing? Honestly, there's not really anything especially new and novel in the in the sense of BGP for this. I mean, if you if you take um, you know some some things that I've been working on, for example, are you know kind of a, a network across a city of multiple of these edge data centers um, connected by this kind of fiber plant that we were talking about, and then you know a typical you know IP MPLS BGP you know network on top of that. Um, there's not really anything particularly unique from a BGP standpoint there. But to be honest, once you have set up, you know, your your physical and logical cross connects between networks in this location, um, you can you can really do whatever you want. You could keep that as a you know a local peering. You could introduce that into your wider BGP network. You could do a lot of different things, but typically none of them are tremendously new and unique and exciting from a BGP standpoint. Yeah, I, I didn't figure, but I thought it was worth throwing that out there. So let me let me turn this edge exchange idea on its head a little bit. One of the challenges or one of the, the points of edge computing is, hey, I don't have the time to wait to send this all the way up to public cloud, have it be processed and then get my results set back before I can act on it. I got to deal with it now. And so I'm going to have this very close to me computing cluster that's going to deal with that for me. Um, but with an edge exchange, I could, as a public cloud, plumb into that edge exchange and then bring public cloud that much closer to people. Um, that it does does it now mean that does an edge exchange possibly represent an opportunity to do some processing in public cloud that I couldn't have before? It definitely does, and the the way I tend to think of it is, um, you know, I tend to think of things in terms of like the the memory and storage hierarchy in a computer, right? So we've got you know, we've got tape might be you know very large centralized location on the west coast, for example. Um, you know, my hard disk might be my local, well, not local, but, you know, the closest regional, um, you know, data center that's hosting that cloud. And then this edge data center is more like the RAM, right? So I can do a certain amount of things in RAM. Sooner or later, I may then have to still send something back up to the disk. Um, so what, what the edge exchange does that's kind of interesting in that sense is if you're a cloud provider, you are able to bring essentially it's an edge data center in the ideal case, right? So you could bring, you know, a, a service to that location and then physically deploy that 
at that edge site, then for any local processing that you're able to do, that's the fastest way to do it that you possibly can, both from a processing and energy exchange standpoint. But then for cases where you need to get back to that kind of hard disk layer, um, if you will, pardon my analogy, um, you can basically plumb in you know, a cloud on-ramp connection directly to that edge exchange and then get a very direct path from that uh, edge site back to the nearest point where that cloud is on a regional basis, if that makes sense. The internet is becoming a bigger and bigger and bigger mesh. Uh, you've seen those maps where they show all the interconnections that uh, that are out there, how the ASs inter- interweave and so on. It's it's just going to be more of that with this, potentially, this explosion at the edge of uh, interconnection complexity defining the internet. I think so. And the way I tend to I tend to break it down is uh, I think of kind of the, the evolution of the internet over three kind of fairly core stages. I think of, you know, 70s and 80s, we have it based originally on the, you know, kind of parts, cell phone, not cell, not even cell yet, the parts, um, you know, copper phone network connectivity in the ground. Um, so we're operating from a small number of, you know, largely centralized locations. Then in the 90s and the 2000s, we've got, you know, CDNs, the emergence of this kind of more regionalization of internet infrastructure. We've got the emergence of cloud, things like that. Um, and then I think in, in the next decade, it's really moving out further into things like this edge exchange built on these edge computing sites and networks, um, because ultimately we're going to be moving more traffic. It's not really getting considerably cheaper to move huge amounts of traffic. It's getting more expensive to upgrade you know, brownfield network infrastructure that crosses the whole country. No, no, it's not. That's not true. No, the pricing on, I'd say, a 10 gigabit bear is down 90% over the last 10 years. It's I was much cheaper. In, yeah. um, sorry, sorry, I didn't I didn't make that yeah. point properly. I was thinking in regards to the amount of traffic that I'm actually carrying. Like I'm, I'm yeah. carrying more than is... I'm, ca- I'm spending typically more on data transit than I was previously, even though the cost of transiting it has gone down, the amount of data that I'm moving has gone up exponentially. Mm, we can have a debate about that. I actually think it's about neutral. So Fair as as the, the data that I've seen from companies like Telegeography suggests that the price of interconnect services have dropped pretty much in line with the rise of the data. So it's basically whatever you were paying 10 years ago, you're still paying now, but the bandwidth is up 10 times or whatever the number is. And the telcos are pretty careful not to give away anything, right? And customers who buy bandwidth, they're actually reasonably smart. And I'm not talking about enterprises, I'm talking about telco to telco traffic. And everybody knows what the real price is. So there's not a lot of room for arbitrage or for exploitation in that market. So you don't tend to see telcos, you know, up upping the price like Cisco has with its enterprise gear by 50% in the last three years and getting away with it because the telcos know what the real price is. Right, right. And, uh, you know, it'd be interesting to dig further into. That's purely based off of discussions that I've had with with some of the Mm -hmm. telcos and some of the network operators. They may be looking ahead (laughs) to what they expect to see on, um, you know, on a a 5G basis and all this kind of stuff. But, yeah, yeah, it's interesting to dig into. It's also also a bit self-serving. You ask a telco, is it more expensive or cheaper? Like, oh, it's always more expensive. (laughs) (laughs) It's like like talking to a builder, you know. How how hard is it? Oh, it's going to be very hard, you know. Well, well, no. He's, he, you know, you know, you're in trouble when he goes. Ooh. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> you got to breathe in through his teeth. That's when you know. But, <laughs> that's when you know. Yeah. But you know, you've been. Yeah, you know, like, <laughs> it's not very hard at all. You know, but you got to make it look hard. 
Yeah. No, but, the, yeah, the data suggests yeah. that, you know, the internet exchange points have dropped substantially. The cost of bearers has dropped substantially. Now, there's geographic variations here. Like, for example, the cost of um, inter- interchange in Southern Africa has not come down much, say 50%. But down in places like Europe and the, and, uh, the US, it's down 90%. So it does have geographic variations. So it's very difficult to make, you know, we can make broad generalizations, but, you know, the future's here. It's not evenly distributed, blah, blah, blah. Your, yeah. your mileage may vary, caveat supply, buyer yeah. beware, you know. <laughs> no, no, you, you, you're, you're entirely correct. And, I, you know, I'm not trying to make, you know, a, a yeah, yeah, totally yeah. sweeping statement, but, you know, it's, it's. I think a lot of these these use cases and things that, you know, an interesting aspect of 5G that we've talked about a little bit is how people are actually going to monetize it. You know, it's kind of a, it's kind of a funny situation almost, probably not funny if you work in the finance department at a carrier, but sort of funny from a, from a consumer and sort of network engineer standpoint is this is almost the first generation of networks where everyone's decided they have to build it without knowing how they're actually going to make money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know. but the thing is, is that 5G is like, the transition to 5G and the whole is, is the transition to the internet that should have happened 10 years ago. Exactly. So, to my mind, 4G should have been this, but they didn't. They just said, well, we'll just make 3G a bit better, you know, or yes. just do the same thing, just make it faster. And the 5G is actually, customers will get, my general view is that the first generations, the first 10 years of 5G, there's nothing in it for customers but faster. There's a lot in it for telcos. It finally moves away from overlays using arcane protocols. It's an acknowledgement that data first and everything else doesn't matter. You know, it's just about carrying out. And it's also about software operations, which puts them into a software defined. So we're talking about software driven radios. So the signals that come streaming in off the radio antennas, you know, you're talking like uh, MIMO, 60-way MIMO and beam forming for 6,000 handsets or 10,000 handsets. That's not you know, that's a substantial challenge. And so they're talking about doing all of that in software, not in hardware. And of course, they used to do it in software, on, but it was software on custom hardware. Right. Going forward, it's going to be done in containers and VMs on white box hardware. And that's all going to be done in the tower instead of... And it's a radical change to the way that they work. But it's, for customers, it's going to be much more efficient. I believe the latencies on 5G will drop apparently by 50%, maybe as much as 70%, just by avoiding... All of the uh, the mucking around in the in the poor quality uh, mobile backbones. Oh no, definitely. And this is this is something that um, I've actually been been working on in an edge computing context. And part of what makes this edge exchange interesting to me, because as you correctly identified earlier, um, you know, even if you got all of the the traffic off of that virtualized RAN, if it's still going through these, you know, comparatively arcane, you know, encapsulation and and you know topological constraints that we have today, you've you've kind of wasted most of the effort that you've put in on the air side, right? Because yeah. even if even if in an LTE case, you're typically dealing with somewhere around you know 30 milliseconds of air side latency, let's say 5GNR gets yeah. you ideally, mm. ideally below two to five. Um, if you're still taking 150 millisecond round trip, it's almost pointless, yeah. right? It's quite common to take 50 milliseconds just to get off the mobile network yeah. into the internet yeah. backbone and then you're off and then you're off to the races for whatever your speed of light in a fiber optic medium looks like. Right. So to, to me, you know, one of the most interesting things uh, about this is kind of pulling all these things together where you have this, you have this edge data center facility on, you know, the edge of the 5G RAN, you're able to satisfy that kind of 75 microsecond front hall latency requirement between, you know, a VBBU operating in an edge data center and the 5G radio unit operating on the tower. 
you know, if you go by the five GNR specifications, you for a I think 100 megahertz channel bandwidth radio with uh, 64 TX and RX elements, and mm. using what they call a 72 split in the five GNR spec, I believe you'll be putting consistently 20 gigabits per second of data across that front hall yeah. connection back to that edge if, data center. Within if you're facing the right direction and your tongue sticking out correctly, and you've <laughs> got salt in your right pocket, and you know. <laughs> well, here's the thing, though that that yeah. 20 gigabits per second is just the uh, you know what was previously yeah. going between two ends of a circuit board. So regardless of yes, whether or not right. you yeah. as a user are getting those end data points, you know that you're not going to get 20 gig to the handset. That is 20 no. gig between the remote radio unit and then the BBU operating in yes, that yes. edge data Sorry. center. Yeah. So yes. so so then when you when you look at how that has to work topologically, you have to have those facilities there, and when you're moving that sheer amount of data. Um, you need to get it off of your network as fast as possible, which is where this edge exchange comes in at that point as well. Yeah, that, and that and that I agree. And the equipment in these internet exchange points is going to be unusual going forward. I think, you know, today they're putting like 10 gigabit Ethernet ports in those IXPs and congratulating themselves. But mm -hmm. tomorrow it's going to have to be 400 gig. And very oh, soon, easily. I mean, if they're not already, yeah. you know. Yeah, and again, that's that's also made easier by having the shortest distance between things because if you've got the least distance, you've got the least predictable, sorry, you've got the most predictable network yeah. path and it costs you the let cost you the least to light it up with, you know, 400, 500 terabit connections in some point. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the interesting um, development here is the rise of wave division multiplexing and the simplification of it. Uh, once upon a time, you needed like special magic Uber gear to do DWDM <laughs> and now you can get line cards that go into an Ethernet switch that go straight into the WDM. Yeah, and, yeah uh, was, that's really uh, that's really important because uh, you can't route that much traffic. No, like no, if you, you can't. if you if you bring IP in on and IP out, you just can't scale the internet backbone so much with that. We're going to pause this podcast conversation for just a moment to hear from sponsor Tufin, the security policy company. As enterprises embrace digital transformation and adopt new technologies, IT and cloud environments become increasingly complex and vulnerable to attack. In this environment, the network change process can become a security-driven bottleneck. Tufin has pioneered a security policy management platform to bring automation and analytics to security and network operations. With Tufin's policy-driven automation, each change can be implemented in minutes instead of days, removing the chance of human error. This can significantly accelerate the development and deployment of revenue-generating apps, providing tangible business value in the nearer term, all while securing the network. How does Tufin deliver on these promises in at least four ways? One, end-to-end -end security change automation. Automate access changes across enterprise firewalls and hybrid cloud platforms to increase productivity and eliminate misconfigurations. Two, unified security policy. Define and enforce a central zone-based segmentation matrix to strengthen security posture and meet regulatory mandates. Three, compliance and audit readiness. Ensure compliance with corporate security policies and external industry regulations with a central console for real-time change tracking, including who made the change, when and why, a complete audit trail, and audit-ready reports. Four, a single pane of glass for managing security policy. Tufin Central Console provides policy analysis, search and optimization capabilities across vendors and platforms, and features an interactive topology map of the network. Tufin, the security policy company. Visit them at www.tufin.com and tell them the Packet Pusher sent you. And now, back to the show. I'm sure you remember the uh, the days of, uh, you know, find let's find the fiber guy. 
inside the company somewhere. I, 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 I used to work <laughs> yeah. at uh, a place that was like, let's find it. And he was, you know, like a 64 year old man who was the only guy who knew how to actually like splice the fiber and do all this stuff. So, <laughs> and he used to know. talk about weird things like power sum and mechanical splice and <laughs> fiber optic, pa- you know, optical performance at, you know, 900 nanometers and all that sort of, and you'd be like, what is this guy on about? Why is he not just <laughs> plugging in an ethernet cable and being done with it? No, exactly. And, uh, you know, 20 years later, I am a much wiser and less cynical, more cynical, less, uh, more tolerant, more tolerant. I was, I was going to say, I was like, mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I mean, I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head, really. I mean, it's, mm. it's ultimately to me, this is, this is interesting to me because um, it is something that is actually capable of changing the topology of the internet from both a physical and logical yeah. perspective, yeah. Um, which to me is long overdue. And as you said, should have really be done with 4G, but absolutely needs to be done to support, you know, 5G in any any practical sense. Well, um, I think the, the telcos know that basically there's no more money to be squeezed out of the enterprise. They're not going to pay any more. And the consumer market isn't is already saturated with smartphones. So that market is saturated. And the next market is IoT. So really, I think most of 5G is looking at the selling of bandwidth to IoT, but that's five years away, 10 years away. And there'll be early adopters. The future's not evenly distributed, right? But um, that whole process is yet to work itself out. Will, Will IoT be nodes at the edge of the network sending streaming data back to a central cloud point, or will it be a factory with thousands of sensors streaming data to a local data center, an edge data center, which then summarizes it up and then streams it off to cloud data center and does some local processing. Um, And then either uses the cloud as a controller and does all the work locally, or maybe even uploads all the data into the central cloud for artificial intelligence and machine learning purposes. So, but that's a much different thing. That idea that a smart city is going to have a sensor in every streetlight and every traffic light is going to be fed into a system also presumes that there's a necessary build out of infrastructure right the way through the whole process. It's not going to happen without all of this coming together. No, no, you're right. And I think it's I think it's going to be a hybrid of those from a from an IoT perspective. But I think one one thing I wanted to briefly touch on that's very interesting and I could I could do a whole show talking about this if if anyone is particularly interested. But um I think network slicing in a 5G and edge computing context is where a lot of these guys are going to try and monetize these 5G networks, particularly in the early stages. Um, because what they see today with the emergence of things like CBRS spectrum, which gives, you know, in theory, um, anyone access to 150 megahertz of you know, three mm. gig spectrum. Um, a lot of these companies like, you know, a car company or, you know, factories or cities, all these things are basically saying, well, I need a network that's just mine and does what I need it to do. And frankly, I'm going to go and build my private network, right? We've seen a lot of these kind of build-outs of private LTE networks that then the carriers know they're frozen out of for five to eight years probably. Because once you've put your own LTE infrastructure down, why am I going to call AT&T, right? I've done it. So Mm. what these 5G guys want to do, in my estimation, is be able to build out one 5G network based on one you know, nationwide IP backbone that gets rid of all the, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. the funky encapsulation. They want to build one RAN and they want to over-provision that to the case where they're able to segment that or slice that, as they're now calling it, um, to the extent that to each one of its customers, it can function as their own private network, right? Yeah, I, I that understand that. I think that's... Charge. 
Yeah, I think that's bunk. I think that really? no, that will never. Yeah, it's much easier just to do an SD WAN and avoid it. Uh, Interesting. You know, put an SD, put an SD WAN box at the edge. And why would I bother paying a telco for a private MPLS circuit over a mobile phone? Just put an SD WAN on it, connect up to a half a dozen mobile suppliers, and bang, I'm away. And I've got full control. And more importantly, I've now got at the edge of my network with my SD-WAN appliance, I've got a firewall, I've got content logging, I've got quality control, I've got performance monitoring of the mobile provider. It's centrally controlled. I know exactly what's happening on my network. And in the future, you're probably going to end up where, and this is, I'm just writing a white paper on this right now about the future of SD-WAN. The long-term future of SD-WAN is eventually you'll have an agent in your smartphone that connects you to head office. And that will just use whatever, you know, whatever to connect in and it'll do the VPN and connect you to the cloud or to the data center or to whatever it is. Why would I, why would I trust a telco, a mobile phone company who has, you know, quite honestly, the lived experience of telcos is pretty miserable. <laughs> I would, you know, um, I, w- I would I'm not disagreeing be, with you, but go on. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, no, I think it makes much more sense for people um, if they're rational and they're aware of the market at large, to use 5G as bandwidth, but also to use a DSL connection or a cable or a satellite. Like, look at the space satellites that are coming from SpaceX and Blue Origin. Mm. Uh, The first generation is going to roughly 4,000 satellites, and they've just made application to have up to 33,000 satellites up there. And basically, they're now building an ECMP layer of space satellites, which will be communicating at somewhere between 100 to 400 gigabits per second using free space optics or lasers, if you like. So they will be able to route you from any two points in the world at a latency, in theory, comparable to what you're doing with fiber in the ground. It's the second you said satellites, I was getting Iridium flashback, sorry. Yeah, no, well, for, <laughs> no the worst, well, so, the worst. So I'm writing a white paper on this as well. So if you're an Ignition member, you should try and, and it's, it's taking me hours and hours of research to get this on this. So what they're doing is a lot of these space satellites are only 50 or 60 kilometers up, Yeah. right? And they've got automatic acquisition features and stuff like that. And they move really (laughs) anyway. So they're not, whereas the existing satellites we have today are geostationary over the equator. And they're something like 1500 kilometers up, I think is the number. Could be wrong. I'm not very good at memorizing numbers. But um, uh, if you're in a geostationary orbit, you're looking... Uh, over a thousand milliseconds, right? Uh, sorry, let me go back. Today's satellites are located in geostationary orbits, which is 35,000 kilometers up. So that means an up and down round trip time is a thousand milliseconds, depending on where you are in the world. If you're further north, the trip is quite a bit longer, right? Whereas these, uh, these first generation satellites will be in a low earth orbit at 5,500 kilometers, and then they'll have two tiers of satellites above them running in medium Earth orbit and some in geostationary orbit so they can find you the shortest path around the globe. Now, keep in mind that the speed of light in space is forty-seven is um, significantly faster than the speed of light in a fiber optic cable. Mm. So there is every chance, and I didn't realize this, but yeah, the, the speed of light in a fiber optic cable is 47% less than it is in space. So... The actual signals can go up to space and travel a longer distance, but because they're substantially faster, 30% faster, say, um, it can actually get around the Earth faster than it can go over the ground. And keep in mind there's much less hops in a space network than there might be in a ground-based network. So it would make more sense for people who want bandwidth to avoid 5G and look at these space satellites if they come up and 
they work and they deliver on their promises. Let's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. I mean, you know, from my perspective, I know five G is far from cheap to roll out, but putting stuff in space, in my experience, is is also very expensive. So I'm going to be interested to see what the the you know, actual end kind of turns out pricing of this is going to be. They just use a big okay, slingshot. It's cheap. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out that they're actually not. Apparently, once uh, the current uh, launch cost for a SpaceX launch is sixty million which is much cheaper than what it was. So the previous generation of rocketry was 500 million per launch, and that's why they went with geostationary. The next generation of uh, SpaceX rockets are proposed to be $5 million per payload, and they will be launching rockets every day. So, yeah, and uh, I can send you the articles if you're interested. So the actual mechanics behind this is they're they're on track to achieve a lot of this based on the evidence. So... um, I'm not entirely willing to jump up and say you should have space networking in your strategy, but I'm entirely willing to say uh, five years out, it's entirely possible that you'll have a space network in your SD-WAN strategy. I'm going to send you so many gifts from Red Dwarf when I get on. (laughs) (laughs) Don't be a smeghead. Don't be a smeghead. (laughs) Smeghead L. (laughs) I need to watch that again. I love that. Uh, I I think we... uh, Sorry, go on. This, this, to come back to your internet exchange points, the point is, is that um, we've talked a lot about this and, the, and I've given this a lot of thought. I actually think there's a number of disruptions coming that doesn't necessarily make edge computing as obvious as it was. Like I thought for a long time, edge is natural. You've got to have your fiber optic. There's no other way. But space networking turns some of this on its head. SD-WAN turns a lot of this on its head because it shifts the bandwidth away from traditional uh, legendary, shall we say, legendary WAN technologies legendary. like MPLS. <laughs> that makes them sound very, very cool. Yeah. Well, I was going to say legacy, but people get upset at me when I call MPLS legacy because it is, right? <laughs> but okay, we'll call it legendary because it's historically legendary, right? Um, and I think that going forward, people are just going to use any bandwidth that they can find. And there's enough bandwidth in the 5G networks and the new backbone alternatives that we've got, 400 gig you know, uh, wave division lambdas. And we're talking about cables now running up to 24, 400 gig lambdas, which is just mind-boggling. Um, yeah, so there's lots happening in that space. It's not it's not necessarily as certain as you might think it is. So I, I definitely agree there's a lot more options, uh, you know, that, that, than were apparent even even a couple of years ago, you know, particularly with the advances oh. on the optical side of things and then possibly on the, on the space side of things as well and with SD-WAN. But to me, I, I'm still interested in in this problem of how you how you really have that change in in the network topology, right? Because even in the 5G case, if I don't have this exchange at the edge, I've still got to send all of my stuff. Even if it's even if it's IP at the tower, I've still got to send all of that at some point back to the same IXs that we have and back, right? From a mm-hmm. network topology standpoint, it's like I, yes. I can move it everywhere on the AT&T network if it's IP, but I can't move it between you know AT&T, T-Mobile, for example, right? So. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I was just just to add on to the point that you were saying, I think there are so many options for bandwidth, but I think when you get to moving traffic on the ground between points, you know, the network topology there still matters, and that's that's why I think the the edge exchange is interesting. Um, yes. You know, from a from an additive standpoint. Alex, one concluding kind of thought here about edge exchanges is that the Linux Foundation is involved in this. You mentioned that right near the top of the show before we started going to space and all the different things we've done in this episode. <laughs> um, I live in space. I don't know about you. But. <laughs> what, what role does the Linux Foundation play in edge exchanges? Because it seems like this emerging concept, but yet 
there's apparently open source is tied in somehow. Yeah, so so within the within the Linux Foundation, there's this group called LF Edge, and there's a lot of different projects within that. Um, you know, Acrano, I think it's in there that you guys would be familiar with. Um, a lot of the other um, you know open source um, edge computing related efforts have been rolled into that. And then one of those that that I'm involved with is the Open Glossary of Edge Computing, which attempts to kind of standardize the, the concepts and the language around a lot of these things that come up, you know, in the edge computing space. Because as you know, when when these things are coming out, it's very difficult to have a conversation about them if, if no one's using the same terms, right? So one of the conversations that's kind of been ongoing between those groups for a while is, look, we know we want to, you know, use this kind of concept, but... What, what is it? What does it look like? What do we call it? Um, and that's kind of where the the um, Open Glossary of Edge Computing under that Linux Foundation Edge umbrella has come in. Um, so in the most recent release of that um, glossary, it was like a V2.0 release a couple months back. Um, basically, the, the group there basically got in um, the Linux Foundation definition of what an edge exchange is. So it's currently defined in there as pre-internet traffic exchange occurring at an infrastructure edge data center this function will typically be performed in the edge meet me room of an infrastructure edge data center and may operate in a supplemental or hierarchical fashion with traditional centralized internet exchange points if a destination location is not present at the edge exchange, as is the case with internet bound traffic. An edge exchange may be used in an attempt to improve end to end application latency compared with a centralized internet exchange. Um, Catchy. Catchy. Uh, <laughs> PR I mean, that's, that's just a, like, Succinct, precise. I mean, just. <laughs> Do you want it on a shirt? I can send you one. <laughs> but um, you know, so the the, the idea of, of the Linux Foundation's involvement in that is that this concept is looking to be integrated more into some of those projects that touch the network infrastructure side of things. Um, but it's also you know important so that we have a, a an actual agreed upon definition of what it actually means. So that's that's what that was trying to be. It, it, it's governance. It's an adult in the room that's keeping everybody on the same page it sounds like essentially yeah yeah. because you know you've you've, you guys have have gone through a lot of these emerging technology cycles and you know three quarters of the battle is figuring out what the hell everyone's saying (laughs) (laughs) well alex let's bring this podcast to a close thanks for bringing edge exchanges to our attention and uh, having this conversation and uh and greg for taking us to space and Alex, you have no idea how many, <laughs> you have no respect. I have spent many hours researching space internet, I'll have you know. So have I, but it's usually got lightsabers and things I in it. I am genuinely hoping it solves the rural broadband problem in America. So I'm, <laughs> I am keen. I, I truly am. So. Yes. So, Alex, how can we follow you on the internet? Uh, any blogs you want to talk about? Point people to resources and edge exchanges? Any of those parting thought kind of things you'd like to do with us? Um, sure. So, so I have been very, very bad at updating any of my own personal blogs or social media things for quite a while now. Um, but uh, I'm on Twitter as uh, at Network Arch A R C H 2020. That's not not at Network Arch, as I know someone's going to say. Um, so, I would take a look at that for the the Twitterverse side of things. I will try and be on there more often. Um, from a, an edge exchange standpoint, I think. It, Googling around should probably show a couple of um, articles, some of which I've, I've written on the subject, kind of retreading a lot of what we've gone through today. And I would recommend anybody take a look at the um, Linux Foundation Edge Group's uh, Open Glossary of Edge Computing, where that uh, definition that uh, 
you know, just flawed Greg with its mm. absolute, you know, perfect mm-hmm. prose and just snappy language um, <laughs> can be found. So that's, that's what I would go for. And uh, I, I think I think in the future, there's also uh, a, a long form argument, I think, to be had between me and Greg about network slicing. So I'm definitely looking forward to that. <laughs> I don't think we need to have an argument. We just need to come back there in a five years time and see what's still what's actually happening. Yeah, I know where I am. Yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah. I think I think. So here's my here's my take on network slicing, is um, if it was going to happen, it would have happened. So we were doing network slicing on 3G and 4G, and no one does it. So what's changed between then and now to suddenly make network slicing viable, aside from telcos dreaming up um, hopeful dreams of where new revenue might come from from imaginary places? <laughs> Tune in in such... five years on heavy networking <laughs> and find out how the telcos did with network slicing. Yeah, <laughs> I was, I was going to say, tune in next time. For right. uh, yeah, you, you have such you have such faith in my my friends in the service provider world, and they. I, well, I Alex, thanks for it. joining us on heavy networking again for raising your hand and saying I want to talk because because that was cool. Thank you uh, very much for that, and thanks to you for tuning in. If you have suggestions for future shows, hey, we would like to hear them. Tweet us at Packet Pushers, and we got a contact form at Packet Pushers. Net and submit your ideas or raise your hand because you want to be a guest on Heavy Networking. Talk about your cool project or thing that you're involved with relating to the networking world. And uh, if you'd like to support the Packet Pushers Podcast Network directly, you can do that by being a member at ignition.packetpushers.net. During the show, Greg mentioned some of the white papers that we've got up there that he's written, and we've got white papers from other members of the community. There's uh, courses up there, videos, and lots of content we don't publish anywhere else. And you can have access to all of that at $99 a year, $99 a year, and you support us directly with that. And until then, remember that too much networking would never be enough.